This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. 1.30 a.m. The faithful remnant has shown itself at last. <laughs> so I have the pleasure of, of preaching on Daniel 3, and I wanted to start off with a kind of Daniel 3 story that is contemporary in our time. It actually comes from um, Archbishop Ben Kwashi in Nigeria. Uh, yes. For, former Archbishop, I think, right? Or has he retired recently? Still, Still Bishop. Okay. Wow. Oh, my goodness. He's been a kind of a second father to us here at Church of the Resurrection, Bishop Stewart being our primary father um, here in the diocese. And he wrote a book, Archbishop Ben wrote a book called Neither Bomb Nor Bullet. And in it, he recounts a story of utter surrender, similar to what we find in uh, Daniel 3. So tensions were mounting uh, between Christians and Muslims in his region, and then they came to a breaking point, finally. Violence spread out through the region where he was uh, preaching and ministering to the Lord, uh, to his people. And then uh, it came to, this, to the town where his church was in Zariah. And churches of every denomination were being burned and Christians are being persecuted violently by these militants. And leaders of different Christian denominations began arriving at his home asking him, what should we do? What does the Lord require of us? You see, Archbishop Ben, who was, I believe, Father Ben at the time, was kind of a leader in the area, even among the other churches, non-Anglican churches. And then Slowly, every member of his church started to come and gather in and surrounding his house, all with the same question, what do we do? And many of them were saying, we're ready. We can, if you want, if you just say the word, we will pick up our weapons and we will fight back and shoot these Muslims and keep them away from our people and from our families. But you say the word, what do we do? And so Archbishop Ben, Father Ben, he retreats into his bedroom, and he begins to pray, and he prays for two hours. Imagine that, waiting two hours, persecution, breaking out in this town, but he is seeking the Lord's word. He doesn't presume to act on his own wisdom, but he seeks the wisdom of God, and in doing so, he hears silence from God, and he, through that silence, has a profound word for us that Sometimes when God is silent, it is because he has already spoken. And then suddenly a verse came to um, Father Ben, and it was from Exodus 14, 13 through 14, which reads, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And it occurred to him, oh, I just preached on this verse a week ago, and the Lord is calling me and my church and all the Christians in Zariah to do nothing. And so he comes out, and everyone's been waiting eagerly. What is the Lord saying? What, what, what should we do? And he says to them, the Lord has spoken to me, yes, and, and he says, yes, and do nothing. Squeak, squeak, squeak. Could you say that again? You want us to do nothing? Imagine if people burned this church to the ground 
because his church was, in fact, burned to the ground. And all of you and all of our church gathered around Bishop Stewart's house, and we asked him, what should we do? And he says to us, do nothing. Only stand still and see the deliverance of the Lord. Archbishop Ben says this. He says, I was well aware in writing these words because I neglected to mention he actually wrote a letter to all the Christians, all the churches in the area, and told them, the Lord says, do nothing. Do not retaliate. Do not seek revenge. I was well aware in writing those words that I could have been ordering people to surrender to their deaths. In fact, that's what some said. But the amazing thing is, the people of God actually believed me. It quickly became clear that what the militants had hoped for was not happening. The intention behind these attacks was to provoke Christians to retaliate, resist, or take revenge. But that opportunity was lost because our response was to obey God and do nothing. Instead, the attacks became an embarrassment. In fact, in the book, they kind of fizzle out. And they're just, all these militants are kind of left with the destruction that they created and no reaction from the ones that they were attacking. So I have a question for you to frame my sermon tonight on Daniel 3. And that question is this, are you surrendered to God? Let me be clear, I'm not asking if you believe in God. I'm not asking if you've been saved or if you can narrate a time in your life when you asked Jesus Christ into your heart. All of those things are so important. But I'm asking this, are you dispossessed of yourself? Have you overthrown the dictatorship of your self-governed life? And have you unconditionally surrendered and submitted yourself to God. Can you honestly say to me tonight that there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that God can't ask of you? Can you honestly say that? Even if it means waiting on the Lord's deliverance in the face of murderous opposition. Because if that's not true for you, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and all the saints before you are here to tell you, do it. Give yourself unconditionally to God. It is worth it. It is absolutely worth it. You see, being a Christian means giving up your false sense of control and being vulnerable enough to surrender yourself to God. That is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego witness to us. Some of you are, are too familiar with this passage. You're too comfortable with Daniel 3. Perhaps this passage conjures up some quaint and sentimental images. For me, I had to constantly keep veggie tales out of my head as I was trying to uh, write this sermon. But this sentimentality, it's very dangerous because we miss what God is doing and what God demands of us when we sentimentalize these three men. You see, sentimentalizing these men, it, it makes it easy to imagine that it was always inevitable 
that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would choose to defy King Nebuchadnezzar, remain loyal to God, and boldly face death despite no certain hope of deliverance. We get the impression that was inevitable, but it was never inevitable. No, think about this with me. Imagine the other choices that I'm certain tempted these men. Let me mention just two. There are many, but just two. Compromise was one temptation. And retaliation, that was another temptation. Compromise, retaliation. Let me unpack those briefly. So compromise. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were likely tempted to have just bowed down and worshipped the golden image. All they would need to do is bow down and cross their fingers while they did it. Remember, as Jews, they're minorities living under a violent Babylonian empire. Their existence as Jews is already hanging by a thread. By not bowing down, they risk not only their own lives, but the lives of their fellow Jews. It's perhaps easier to imagine giving up your own life for others. But what about your faithfulness requiring the life of somebody else? And it would have required the life of somebody else. Look at verse 8 with me. It says here, it says, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Not some Jews, but the Jews. All of them. They accused all the Jews by accusing a few that they took to be token representatives of the Jews, who, as it turned out, were also representatives of the Babylonian state. So what we have in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is a conflict of allegiances with the very real possibility that failure to choose the allegiance to their earthly king could mean the slaughter of their fellow Jews, men, women, children, not to mention the loss of their own lives. Was God really asking them to surrender themselves and others to their deaths? Does God really demand of us not only that we suffer for our faithfulness, but that someone else suffers for our faithfulness too? Do you hear how reasonable these temptations sound at first? Can you see how human, how humane it could have felt to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to just bow down and save themselves and others? Are you beginning to feel with me the sting of what faithfulness to God requires of you? Now that we are beginning to fill out the picture of what it means to surrender yourself to God, I ask you again, are you surrendered to God? I wonder what the devil is tempting you to compromise with. Maybe you're not facing murderous persecution for your faith, but where is the conflict of allegiance in your life? Have you made a compromise with a false teaching that you really, really want to be true, but you know can't be made compatible with Scripture? So you're beginning to question and doubt Scripture rather than allowing Scripture to question you. Could God be calling you to do something hard, to endure mockery and isolation in school because your faith demands that you live and believe differently than people around you? Or is God calling you to submit your money to him, not just your 10% tithe, but all of your finances to him? Maybe God is calling you 
to join our missionaries in their work overseas or to join a church plant in our diocese. And maybe you're tempted to compromise with comfort. So compromise, that's their first temptation. Retaliation, absolutely, must have been a temptation for them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their fellow Jews could have retaliated by grabbing anything and everything that remotely resembled a weapon and cleaving the heads of their enemies. Even Archbishop Ben's fellow Christians were tempted with this choice. And, it is, and isn't it more dignifying, especially if you're going to be killed anyways, to just go down sword swinging? That's what Peter thought. Peter thought so. See, when, when a violent crowd came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter draws his sword and he swings it at Malchus's head. Malchus ducks out of the way just enough to save his head, to say nothing of his ear. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He rebukes him, saying, enough of this. Put your sword back in its place. For all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Full stop. That's where the sentence ends. See, Jesus doesn't qualify these words. He doesn't tell us, well, okay, under such and such circumstances, it might be appropriate to use the sword, especially in cases of self-defense, you know, murderous persecution, or perhaps a national emergency. I mean, we have to be realistic after all. Now, all who take up the sword perish by the sword. The people of God are a people schooled in the virtue of peacemaking so that they do not need to retaliate with violence. And you might well ask me, but what defense does that leave us with? But consider for a moment the whole witness of Israel's scriptures on this point. From exodus to exile, God is repeatedly telling his people through his prophets, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be still. Elsewhere in Zechariah, he says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Israel's whole history is the story of one miraculous preservation after another. In fact, their story goes awry precisely when they think that by their might and their power, they can save themselves. And who could blame them? Friends, is there anything more vulnerable than suppressing your instinct to self-preservation, instead trusting in God's deliverance? But that is part of what being the people of God means. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew their people's history well. They had already learned from their exile to Babylon that if they were going to put their trust in anyone, it had to be the God of Israel. Trusting in anything else had clearly and demonstrably failed them. But, in the words of Mama Catherine, everyone wants to see a miracle, but no one wants to need one. No one wants to need a miracle, friends, because needing a miracle gives you no other option but to entrust the outcome of your life entirely to God. Those of you here who have needed a miracle, you can attest to this. Those of you who need a miracle tonight can attest to this. Maybe you're not, being you're not being tempted to retaliate by violence, but is there something in your life that's making you feel like your back is against the wall and you're desperately searching for deliverance somewhere? I ask you again, are you surrendered to God? 
compromise and retaliation. Those were two of many temptations that faced Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I imagine that both choices were tempting to them, but let me tell you in no uncertain terms, neither compromise nor retaliation reflects a life of total surrender to God. And why is that? Both, comp both compromising allegiance to God and retaliating with violence have this in common. They are both attempts to control the outcome of your life. But control is an illusion. It always was. Why? Because the forces are so much greater than you. If you compromise with a lie, for example, then another lie will be demanded of you, and another, and another. If you retaliate with violence, the cycle of revenge will overpower you, and what once seemed like something you controlled is now a raging fire. So if control is an illusion from the beginning, then what really do you have to lose by surrendering yourself to God? Remember, you're no longer your own, but you belong body and soul to God. This is what God demands of you. He demands the sometimes excruciating vulnerability of giving up on the illusion of controlling the outcome of your life. If you don't feel like that describes you, well, let me, let me tell you, it describes Jesus. Think about the final minutes before Jesus was hung on the tree. At every turn, he is tempted to save himself rather than surrender to the will of his Father. Now, let me be very clear. When Jesus is walking to his death, he surrenders himself to his Father's will, but his Father is in complete control. But he chooses, Jesus chooses, to surrender rather than exploit his status as the Son of God by saving himself. Listen to the voices that shouted at Jesus on his way to the cross. The religious people, they're shouting at him, he saved others, let him save himself. The Roman soldiers added, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Mockers come by the roadside and they say, save yourself, come down from the cross if you're the son of God. Finally, the criminal next to Jesus screams, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Save yourself, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. Under the worst torture imaginable for his day, Jesus chose not to save himself, but to give himself. And that is how he saved us. He doesn't compromise by coming down from the cross. He doesn't retaliate by killing his enemies. Instead, his self-giving love for us while we were yet his enemies made the way of the cross to be the way of life because the power of his self-giving love burst open death itself. Peter puts it this way. He said, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So now... Follow Jesus. Take up your cross. You're free. You no longer have to try to save yourself by controlling your life. You no longer have to live under the illusion that you can get out of life alive because you can't. But you're free from the fear of death. 
People of God, if you can resolve within yourselves, like Jesus did, to surrender yourself to the God who loves you and gave himself up for you, I promise you, even in death, you will find life. And I can promise you this also, surrendering your life and your death to Jesus, it is worth it. It is worth it to give yourself over completely and unconditionally to Jesus. Yes, it will mean your life is no longer your own, and God can ask literally anything of you, absolutely anything. Your vocation belongs to him, your money belongs to him, your family belongs to him, your future belongs to him, and I know, I know how vulnerable that feels. But if you lose your life by giving it to Jesus, you will find it. I can't tell you how Jesus will appear in the fire for you, but whether in living or in dying, you, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, will find one like the Son of Man in your midst. And when you, like Jesus, are resurrected from the dead, there will be no smell of the fires of death upon you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.